Stories, fables, ghostly tales. Welcome, my traveller. Back for another drink and a seat by the fire. We don't see so many of your folk around here. Not to say humans aren't popular. No, no, that's not it. Hell, half the chairs you sit on here, you might not realize, only look like chairs. But it's not your fault. You just can't see them for what they are just yet. Spend some more time here with us, and you'll start seeing a whole new world altogether. Mind you, that's neither here nor there. You came for a drink, and a drink you'll have. Earl Grey is always stuck at the moment, but I'm sure you'll enjoy it. Whilst I'm brewing, let me share a story with you. It's called The Oracle of the Dog. Yes, I always like a dog, so long as he isn't spelt backwards. Those who are quick in talking are not always quick in listening. Sometimes even their brilliancy produces a sort of stupidity. Father Brown's friend and companion was a young man, with a stream of ideas and stories. An enthusiastic young man named Phanus, with eager blue eyes and blonde hair that seemed to be brushed back, not merely with a hairbrush, but with the wind of the world as he rushed through it. But he stopped in the torrent of his talk, in a momentary bewilderment before he saw the priest's very simple meaning. You mean that people make too much of them? He said. Well, I don't know. They're marvellous creatures. Sometimes I think they know a lot more than we do. Father Brown said nothing, but continued to stroke the head of the big retriever in a half-abstracted but apparently soothing fashion. Why, said Finnis, warming again to his monologue, there was a dog in the case I've come to see you about, what they call the invisible murder case. You know, it's a strange story. But from my point of view, the dog is about the strangest thing in it. Of course, there's the mystery of the crime itself, and how old Druce can have been killed by somebody else when he was all alone in the summer house. The hand stroking the dog stopped for a moment in its rhythmic movement, and Father Brown said calmly, Oh, it was the summer house, was it? I thought you read all about it in the papers, answered Phoenix. Stop a minute, I believe I've got a cutting that will give you all the particulars. He produced a strip of newspaper from his pocket and handed it to the priest, who began to read it, holding it close to his blinking eyes with one hand or the other, continued its half-conscious caresses of the dog. It looked like the parable of a man not letting his right hand know what his left hand did. Many mystery stories about men murdered behind locked doors and windows and murderers escaping without means of entrance and exit have come true in the course of the extraordinary events at Cranston on the coast of Yorkshire, where Colonel Druce was found stabbed from behind by a dagger that has entirely disappeared from the scene, and apparently even from the neighbourhood. The summer house in which he died was indeed accessible at one entrance, the ordinary doorway which looked down the central walk of the garden towards the house, but... By a combination of events, almost to be called a coincidence, it appears that both the path and the entrance were watched during the crucial time, and there is a chain of witnesses who confirm each other. The summer house stands at the extreme end of the garden, where there is no exit or entrance of any kind. The central garden path is a lane between two ranks of tall delphiniums, 
planted so close that any stray step off the path would leave its traces, and both path and plants run right up to the very mouth of the summer house, so that no straying from the straight path could fail to be observed and no other mode of entrance can be imagined. Patrick Floyd, secretary of the murdered man, testified that he had been in a position to overlook the whole garden from the time when Colonel Druce last appeared alive to the time when he was found dead, as he, Floyd, had been on the top of a stepladder clipping the garden hedge. Janet Druce, the dead man's daughter, confirmed this, saying that she had sat on the terrace of the house throughout that time and had seen Floyd at his work. Touching some part of the time, this is again supported by Donald Druce, her brother, who overlooked the garden, standing at his bedroom window in his dressing gown for he had risen late. Lastly, the account is consistent with that given by Dr. Valentine, a neighbour who called for a time to talk with Miss Druce on the terrace, and by the colonel's solicitor, Mr. Aubrey Trail, who was apparently the last to see the murdered man alive, presumably with the exception of the murderer. All are agreed that the course of events was as follows. About half past three in the afternoon, Miss Druce went down the path to ask her father when he would like tea, but he said he did not want any and was waiting to see Trail, his lawyer, who was to be sent to him in the summer house. The girl then came away and met Trail coming down the path. She directed him to her father, and he went in as directed. About half an hour afterwards, he came out again, the colonel coming with him to the door and showing himself to all appearance in health and even high spirits. He had been somewhat annoyed early in the day by his son's irregular hours, but seemed to be recovering from his temper in a perfectly normal fashion, and had been rather markedly genial in receiving other visitors, including two of his nephews who came over for the day. But as these were out walking during the whole period of the tragedy, they had no evidence to give. It is said indeed that the colonel was not on very good terms with Dr. Valentine, but that gentleman only had a brief interview with the daughter of the house, to whom he was supposed to be paying serious attentions. Trail, the solicitor, says he left the colonel entirely alone in the summer house, and this is confirmed by Floyd's bird-eye view of the garden, which showed nobody else passing the only entrance. Ten minutes later, Miss Druce again went down the garden and had not reached the end of the path when she saw her father, who was conspicuous by his white linen coat, lying in a heap on the floor. She uttered a scream, which brought others to the spot, and on entering the place, they found the colonel lying dead beside his basket chair, which was also upset. Dr. Valentine, who was still in the immediate neighbourhood, testified that the wound was made by some sort of stiletto, entering under the shoulder blade and piercing the heart. The police have searched the neighbourhood for such a weapon, but no trace of it can be found. So Colonel Druce wore a white coat, did he? Said Father Brown as he put down the paper. Trick he learnt in the tropics, replied Finis, with some wonder. He had some queer adventures there, by his own account, and I fancy his dislike of Valentine was connected with the doctor coming from the tropics too. But it's all an infernal puzzle. The account there is pretty accurate. I didn't see the tragedy in the scent of the discovery. I was out walking with the young nephews and the dog, the dog I wanted to tell you about. But I saw the stage set for it as described, the straight lane between the blue flowers right up the dark entrance, and the lawyer going down it in his blacks and his silk hat, and the red head of the secretary showing high above the green hedge as he worked on it with his shears. 
Nobody could have mistaken that redhead at any distance. And if people say they saw it there all the time, you may be sure they did. This redhead secretary, Floyd, is quite a character, a breathless, bounding sort of fellow, always doing everybody's work as he was doing the gardener's. I think he's an American. He's certainly got the American view of life. What they call the viewpoint, bless him. What about the lawyer? Asked Father Brown. There was a silence, and then Finnis spoke quite slowly for him. Trail struck me as a singular man. In his fine black clothes, he was almost foppish. Yet you could hardly call him fashionable. For he wore a pair of long, luxuriant black whiskers, such as haven't been seen since Victorian times. He had rather a fine, grave face and a fine, grave manner. But every now and then, he seemed to remember to smile. And when he showed his white teeth, he seemed to lose a little of his dignity. And there was something faintly fawning about him. It may have been only embarrassment, for he would also fidget with his cravat and his tie pin, which were at once handsome and unusual, like himself. If I could think of anybody, but what's the good, when the whole thing's impossible? Nobody knows who did it. Nobody knows how it could be done. At least there's only one exception I'd make, and that's why I really mentioned the whole thing. The dog knows. Father Brown sighed and then said absently, You were there as a friend of young Donald, weren't you? He didn't go on your walk with you? No, replied Finnis, smiling. The young scoundrel had gone to bed that morning and got up that afternoon. I went with his cousins, two young officers from India, and our conversation was trivial enough. I remember the elder, whose name I think is Herbert Druce, and who is an authority on horse breeding, talking about nothing but a mare he had brought and the moral character of the man who sold her, while his brother, Harry, seemed to be brooding on his bad luck at Monte Carlo. I only mention it to show you, in the light of what happened on our walk, that there was nothing psychic about us. The dog was the only mystic in our company. What sort of dog was he? Same breed as that one. That's what started me off on the story. You're saying you don't believe in believing in a dog. He's a big black retriever named Knox, and a suggestive name too, for I think what he did a darker mystery than the murderer. You know Druce's house and gardens are by the sea. We walked about a mile from it, along the sands, and then turned back, going the other way. We passed a rather curious rock called the Rock of Fortune, famous in the neighborhood because it's one of those examples of one stone barely balanced on another, so that a touch would knock it over. It is not really very high, but the hanging outline of it makes it look a little wider and sinister. At least it made it look so to me, for I don't imagine my jolly young companions were afflicted by the picturesque. But it may be that I was beginning to feel an atmosphere, for just then the question arose of whether it was time to go back to tea. And even then I think I had a premonition that time counted for a good deal in the business. Neither Herbert Druce nor I had a watch. So he called out to his brother, who was some paces behind, having stopped to light his pipe under the hedge. Hence it happened that he shouted out the hour, which was twenty past four, in his big voice through the growing twilight, and somehow the loudness of it made it sound like the proclamation of something tremendous. His unconsciousness seemed to make it all the more so, but what was always the way with omens and particular ticks of the clock were really 
very ominous things that afternoon. According to Dr. Valentine's testimony, poor Druce had actually died just about half past four. Well, they said we needn't go home for ten minutes, and we walked a little farther along the sands, doing nothing in particular, throwing stones for the dog and throwing sticks in the sea for him to swim after. But to me, the twilight seemed to grow oddly oppressive, and the very shadow of the top-heavy rock of fortune lay on me like a load. And then the curious thing happened. Knox had just brought back Herbert's walking stick out of the sea, and his brother had thrown his in also. The dog swam out again, but just about what must have been the stroke of the half hour he stopped swimming. He came back again on the shore and stood in front of us. Then he suddenly threw up his head and sent up a howl of wail of woe. If ever I heard one in the world. What the devil is the matter with the dog? Asked Herbert, but none of us could answer. There was a long silence after the brute's wailing and whining died away on the desolate shore. And then the silence was broken. As I live, it was broken by a faint and far-off shriek, like the shriek of a woman from behind the hedges inland. We didn't know what it was then, but we knew afterwards it was the cry the girl gave when she first saw the body of her father. You went back, I suppose, said Father Brown patiently. What happened then? I'll tell you what happened then, said Phoenix with a grim emphasis. When we got back into that garden, the first thing we saw was Trail, the lawyer. I can see him now, his black hat and black whiskers, relieved against the perspective of the blue flowers stretching down to the summer house, with the sunset and the strange outline of the Rock of Fortune in the distance. His face and figure were in shadow against the sunset, but I swear the white teeth were showing in his head and he was smiling. The moment Knox saw that man, the dog dashed forward and stood in the middle of the path, barking at him madly, murderously, volleying out curses that were almost verbal in their dreadful distinctness of hatred. And the man doubled up and fled along the path between the flowers. Father Brown sprang to his feet with a startling impatience. So the dog denounced him, did he? The oracle of the dog condemned him? Did you see what birds were flying? And are you sure whether they were on the right hand or the left? Did you consult the augurs about the sacrifices? Surely you didn't omit to cut open the dog and examine his entrails. That is the sort of scientific test you heathen humanitarians seem to trust when you are thinking of taking away the life and honour of a man. Phoenix sat gaping for an instant before he found breath to say, Why, what's the matter with you? What have I done now? A sort of anxiety came back into the priest's eyes, the anxiety of a man who has run against a post in the dark and wonders for a moment whether he has hurt it. I am awfully sorry, he said with a sincere distress. I beg your pardon for being so rude. Pray forgive me. Phoenix looked at him curiously. I sometimes think you are more of a mystery than any of the mysteries. But anyhow... If you don't believe in the mystery of the dog, at least you can't get over the mystery of the man. You can't deny that at the very moment when the beast came back from the sea and bellowed, his master's soul was driven out of his body by the blow of some unseen power that no mortal man can trace or even imagine. And as for the lawyer, I don't go only by the dog. There are other curious details too. He struck me as a smooth, smiling, equivocal sort of person, and one of his tricks seemed like a sort of a hint. You know the doctor and the police were on the spot very quickly. 
Valentine was brought back when walking away from the house, and he telephoned instantly. That, with the secluded house, small numbers, and enclosed space, made it pretty possible to search everybody who had been near. And everybody was thoroughly searched. For a weapon. The whole house, garden, and shore were combed for a weapon. The disappearance of the dagger is almost as crazy as the disappearance of the man. The disappearance of the dagger, said Father Brown, nodding. He seemed to have become suddenly attentive. Well, continued Phoenix, I told you that man, Trail, had a trick of fidgeting with his tie and tie pin, especially his tie pin. His pin, like himself, was at once showy and old-fashioned. It had one of those stones with concentric coloured rings that looked like an eye, and his own concentration on it got on my nerves as if he had been a cyclops with one eye in the middle of his body. But the pin was not only large but long, and it occurred to me that his anxiety about its adjustment was because it was even longer than it looked, as long as a stiletto, in fact. Father Brown nodded thoughtfully. Hmm, was any other instrument ever suggested? There was another suggestion, answered Phanus. From one of the young Druses, the cousins, I mean, Neither Herbert nor Harry Druce would have struck one at first, as likely to be of assistance in scientific detection. But while Herbert was really the traditional type of heavy dragoon, caring for nothing but horses and being an ornament to the horse guards, his younger brother Harry had been in the Indian police and knew something about such things. Indeed, in his own way, he was quite clever, and I'd rather fancy he had been too clever. I mean, he had left the police through breaking some red tape regulations and taking some sort of risk and responsibility of his own. Anyhow, he was in some sense a detective out of work, and threw himself into this business with more than the ardour of an amateur. And it was with him that I had an argument about the weapon, an argument that led to something new. It began by his countering my description of the dog barking at trail, and he said that a dog at his worst didn't bark, but growled. He was quiet right there, observed the priest. This young fellow went on to say that, if it came to that, he'd heard knocks growling at other people before then, and among others at Floyd, the secretary. I retorted that his own argument answered itself, for the crime couldn't be brought home to two or three people, and at least of all to Floyd, who was as innocent as a harum sacrum schoolboy, and had been seen by everybody all the time perched above the garden hedge with his fan of red hair as conspicuous as a scarlet cockatoo. I know there's difficulties anyhow, said my colleague, but I wish you'd come with me down to the garden a minute. I want to show you something I don't think anyone else has seen. This was on the very day of the discovery, and the garden was just as it had been. The stepladder was still standing by the hedge, and just under the hedge my guy stopped and disentangled something from the deep grass. It was the shears used for clipping the hedge, and on the point of one of them was a smear of blood. There was a short silence, and then Father Brown said suddenly, What was the lawyer there for? He told us the colonel sent for him to alter his will, answered Finnis. And, by the way, there was another thing about the business of the will that I ought to mention. You see, the will wasn't actually signed in the summer house that afternoon. I suppose not. There would have to be two witnesses. The lawyer actually came down the day before, and it was signed then. But he was sent for again the next day, 
because the old man had a doubt about one of the witnesses and had to be reassured. Who were the witnesses? That's just the point, replied his informant eagerly. The witnesses were Floyd, the secretary, and this Dr. Valentine, the foreign sort of surgeon, or whatever he is, and the two have a quarrel. Now, I'm bound to say that the secretary is something of a busybody. He's one of those hot and headlong people whose warmth of temperament has unfortunately turned mostly to pugnacity and bristling suspicion. To distrusting people instead of to trusting them. That sort of red-haired, red-hot fellow is always either universally credulous or universally incredulous, and sometimes both. He was not only a jack-of-all-trades, but he knew better than all tradesmen. He not only knew everything, but he warned everybody against everybody. All that must be taken into account in his suspicions about Valentine, but in the particular case, there seems to have been something behind it. He said the name of Valentine was not really Valentine. He said he had seen him elsewhere down by the name of de Villon. He said it would invalidate the will. Of course, he was kind enough to explain to the lawyer what the lawyer was on that point. They were both in a frightful wax. Father Brown laughed. <laughs> People often are when they are to witness a will. For one thing, it means that they can't have any legacy under it. But what did Dr. Valentine say? No doubt the Universal Secretary knew more about the doctor's name than the doctor did. But even the doctor might have some information about his own name. Fainus paused a moment before he replied. Dr. Valentine took it in a curious way. Dr. Valentine is a curious man. His appearance is rather striking but very foreign. He is young but wears a beard cut square. And his face is very pale. Dreadfully pale and dreadfully serious. His eyes have a sort of ache in them as if he ought to wear glasses, or had given himself a headache with thinking. But he is quite handsome, and always very formally dressed, with a top hat and a dark coat, and a little red rosette. His manner is rather cold and haughty, and he has a way of staring at you which is very disconcerting. When thus charged with having changed his name, he merely stared like a sphinx, and with a little laugh he supposed Americans had no names to change. And that I think the colonel also got into a fuss and said all sorts of angry things to the doctor, all the more angry because of the doctor's pretensions to a future place in his family. But I shouldn't have thought much of that, but for a few words that I happened to hear later, early in the afternoon of the tragedy, I don't want to make a lot of them, for they weren't the sort of words on which one would like, in the ordinary way, to play the eavesdropper. As I was passing out towards the front gate with my two companions and the dog, I heard voices which told me that Dr. Valentine and Miss Druce had withdrawn for a moment into the shadow of the house, in an angle behind a row of flowering plants, and were talking to each other in passionate whispers, sometimes almost like hissings, for it was something of a lover's quarrel as well as a lover's tryst. Nobody repeats the sort of things they said, for the most part, but in an unfortunate business like this, I'm bound to say that there was repeated more than once a phrase about killing somebody. In fact, the girl seemed to be begging him not to kill somebody, or saying that no provocation could justify killing anybody, which seems an unusual sort of talk to address to a gentleman who has dropped in to tea. Do you know? Whether Dr. Valentine seemed to be very angry after the scene with the secretary and the colonel, I mean about witnessing the will. By all accounts, he wasn't half so angry as the secretary was. It was the secretary who went away raging after witnessing the will. 
And now, what about the will itself? The colonel was a very wealthy man, and his will was important. Trail wouldn't tell us the alteration at that stage, but I have since heard, only this morning in fact, that most of the money was transferred from the son to the daughter. I told you that Druce was wild with my friend Donald over his dissipated hours. The question of the motive has been rather overshadowed by the question of method, observed Father Brown thoughtfully. At that moment, apparently, Miss Druce was the immediate gainer by the death. Good God! What a cold-blooded way of talking! cried Fina, staring at him. You don't really mean to hint that she... Is she going to marry that Dr. Valentine? asked the other. Some people are against it, answered his friend. But he is liked and respected in the place, and is a skilled and devoted surgeon. So devoted a surgeon that he had surgical instruments with him when he went to call on the young lady at tea time? For he must have used a lancet or something, and he never seems to have gone home. Fina sprang to his feet and looked at him in a heat of inquiry. You suggest he might have used the very same lancet? Father Brown shook his head. All these suggestions are fancies just now. The problem is not who did it or what did it, but how it was done. We might find many men, and even many tools, pins and shears and lancets, but how did a man get into the room? How did even a pin get into it? He was staring reflectively at the ceiling as he spoke, but as he said the last words, his eyes cocked in an alert fashion, as if he had suddenly seen a curious fly on the ceiling. Well, what would you do about it? asked the young man. You have a lot of experience. What would you advise now? I'm afraid I'm not much use, said Father Brown with a sigh. Oh, I can't suggest very much without having ever been near the place or the people. For the moment, you can only go on with local inquiries. I gather that your friend from the Indian police is more or less in charge of your inquiry down there. I should run down and see how he's getting on, see what he's been doing in the way of amateur detection. There may be news already. As his guests, the biped and the quadruped disappeared, Father Brown took upon his pen and went back to his interrupted occupation of planning a course of lectures on the encyclical Rerum Neverum. The subject was a large one, and he had to recast it more than once, so that he was somewhat similarly employed some two days later when the big black dog again came bounding into the room and sprawled all over him with enthusiasm and excitement. The master who followed the dog shared the excitement, if not the enthusiasm. He had been excited in a less pleasant fashion, for his blue eyes seemed to start from his head, and his eager face was even a little pale. You told me, he said abruptly and without preface, to find out what Harry Drews was doing. Do you know what he's done? The priest did not reply, and the young man went on in jerky tones. I'll tell you what he's done. He's killed himself. Father Brown's lips moved only faintly, and there was nothing practical about what he was saying, nothing that he has anything to do with this story or this world. You give me the creep sometimes, said Phoenix. Did you, did you expect this? I thought it possible. That was why I asked you to go and see what he was doing. I hoped you might not be too late. It was I who found him, said Phoenix rather huskily. It was the ugliest and most uncanny thing I ever saw. I went down that old garden again, and I knew there was something new and unnatural about it besides that murder. 
The flowers still tossed about in blue masses on each side of the black entrance into the old grey summer house, but to me, the blue flowers looked like blue devils dancing before some dark cavern of the underworld. I looked around, everything seemed to be in its ordinary place, but the queer notion grew on me that there was something wrong with the very shape of the sky, and then I saw what it was. The Rock of Fortune always rose in the background beyond the garden hedge and against the sea, and the Rock of Fortune was gone. Father Brown had lifted his head and was listening intently. And that's where we'll stop for now. A good old mystery, folks. A story about a dog who knows more than it lets on. Written in 1929, this is the first part of The Oracle of the Dog. Written by G.K. Chesterton and part of the Father Brown Stories lineup. Now next week, we'll find out who killed Mr. Droops, what were their motives, and how was it done without leading or finding of the murder weapon. Mate, stick with me Wednesday for the finale of this one. Listeners, don't forget to subscribe so you'll hear from me three times a week. Monday is old time radio remastering, and Wednesday to Friday are stories from all genres. And if you have any spare dollar dues to send to this podcast, visit my Patreon to do so at www.patreon.com forward slash sfgt. It's that easy. And now for the legends that support this podcast already, they are as follows. My old knighty titan, Megastar Maya, the queen of cats. Your tier of support has provided this podcast with the RX software required to repair and heal audio like no other podcaster around. I'm fortunate enough to have your tier of support, which means all listeners benefit from top quality audio remastering, repair and healing of audio back from the 1920s, 40s, 50s and 60s. And I can't wait till next week to showcase even more of what RX8 can do. And that's all thanks to you, Maya. Thank you so, so much. My white tea warlord, Leza Bauer, the man of pure power. Thank you so much, Leza, for supporting me the way you do. I've been able to push the auditory envelope, as it were, in today's episode. I've swapped out some plugins that I usually use to do some trialing on some new ones. Let me know if you can hear the difference, folks, and if it's good or bad. I'm always looking at ways to improve the clarity in my audio, and your support directly helps with this. So thank you so much, Leza. You're a superstar. And my second white tea warlord, because I'm lucky to have two, Paige Kramer, the knowledge tamer. Paige, you are bloody brilliant. With your support, I've been hammering hard on two things. Sourcing the pop shield I mentioned in the previous episode, and also ensuring that subscription costs are maintained to keep this podcast pumping on the internet waves. Thank you so much for your ongoing support, mate. And your donations also feed into some of the new audio sound effects and music that I've been using. So thank you very much very much. And the superstars that are my old great enforcers I am lucky to have. Chad Warren, Just Heather, Juicebox Andy, Peter Raffelli, Dolphin and Cow, Michelangelo, Yacone, Tea Time Drinker 1, and Divided by Zero. Have a kick-ass weekend, folks. You're all legends, never forget it. And join me next week, listeners, for something special just like you. With more tales, more OTRs, and more awesome. As always, mates, Till next we meet.